Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. The disciples were in for one wild ride in the first century. The divine drama that would play out concerned who are the true people of God? Christless Judaism with its magnificent city and temple, or the ragtag fledgling Christian church? According to Jesus, this drama would not come down to architecture or wealth, but to something that cannot be manufactured, fruit. Fruit, as Jesus would later explain, is the organic byproduct of a particular relationship between branches and a living vine. And fruit of the spiritual variety is the organic byproduct of a particular relationship between people and the living Christ. So the question of who are the true people of God would come down to who produces the fruit of the kingdom of God. As Jesus would later explain to the Jewish leaders about to murder him, the kingdom would be taken from them and given to a nation bearing its fruit. This new nation would be unlike any other, for it would be formed not on ethnicity, language, or any such affinity, but on communion with the living God through Christ. But in the meantime, the disciples, as I said, were in for a wild ride, punctuated by persecution, false prophets, and false messiahs. They needed to know how to tell the false from the true. It turns out, as Jesus explains in our text, that the way you tell false and true prophets is the way you tell false and true disciples, which is the same way you tell the false and true people of God, by their fruit. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. This morning we come to Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Matthew 7, chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. So let's read those together, for this is the very breath of God. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us for our strength and our comfort, that we might believe unto eternal life, that we might be your people and serve you, bear fruit for you, and be your witness and your light to the world. And so we pray now, bring this word to us by your Holy Spirit, that we would be made strong like the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name, amen. Well, Jesus here is coming down the home stretch the Sermon on the Mount. And as he is winding up, he is giving some very pointed charges and challenges to his uh, people. We saw last week how he challenged them to enter by the narrow gate, for the gospel of Christ is an exclusive gospel in that sense. 
and he challenged them to choose the difficult way, not the wide gate and the easy way where the great majority of fellow Israelites were going to be headed. And this week, he begins to speak about false prophets. And it's important that we uh, understand that this had a particular application in the first century. Jesus will later expand on this warning, giving a lot more detail in the Olivet Discourse shortly before his arrest and crucifixion. But before we look at the detail he gives there, I think it's important for us to see the big picture of what is going to be happening during the period that Jesus is preparing his disciples for, which is the 40-year period between his ascension, which will occur in about 30 AD, and then his judgment on apostate Jerusalem, which will occur in 70 AD when the Roman legions will come in and destroy the city, including the temple. So remember that God's people in the Old Testament went through 40 years of testing in the wilderness after the Exodus. And Jesus himself in the New Testament refers to his death and resurrection as a new Exodus. That's not apparent from the English, but it is apparent from the Greek. Uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where uh, James and Peter and John are witnessing Jesus as his glory is manifested and he's transformed before them. And it says that Moses and Elijah were speaking to him. And it says that Jesus was speaking to Moses and Elijah about the great exodus that he was about to accomplish. The Greek word is exodon, the word for exodus. In the English, it usually says he was speaking to them about his death or his departure, but that really robs it of its power. Um, what this means is that all of the uh, drama in the history around the exodus of the Israelites with Moses in the Old Testament, all of the, the hundreds of years that God took to set that up and to bring that about, it was all a picture of what Jesus the greater Moses was going to accomplish in his death and resurrection. And remember that the fulfillment of the type is always is greater than the type. Okay, So that means that you, you think about Moses, you think about the plagues, you think about the power of God there, you think about the death of the first, firstborn, you think about the Passover and the blood on the doorposts, and you think about the parting of the Red Sea, how great and magnificent and powerful that was. That was small compared to what Jesus did in his death and resurrection and ascension. That was the true and great exodus. So, just as God's people went through 40 years in the wilderness of, of special testing, we always have testing. But there was a uniqueness to the 40 years of testing that God's people went through after the first exodus. And that's exactly what we find in the New Testament recorded in the book of Acts and so forth, is that God's people after the real exodus, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, God's people again went through a 40-year period of unique uh, temptation and testing. Okay, so this was a unique time in history. There are elements of that period that uh, carry out uh, through all of church history. We all face tests. We have, uh, there's always heresies out there. There's always false prophets in a sense out there. But there's a sense in which this period was absolutely unique. 
And if we're going to be able to apply Jesus' word to our own day, it's important, first of all, that we understood exactly what it meant to those whom he was speaking to at the time. Now, to see the big picture here, I want to direct your attention to Revelation chapter 12. And for time's sake, we're not going to read that, but I would urge you to read uh, Revelation chapter 12 in your personal or family devotions this week, for it is, a, it is a very fascinating and powerful read. Revelation chapter 12 gives us basically an apocalyptic language what happened when Jesus ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father. Well, it tells us that he ascended to heaven, and when he did so, that warfare broke out in heaven between Christ and his angels and the devil and his angels, and that the end of that struggle was the victory of Christ and his angels over the devil and his angels. And it says that no place was found for them any longer in heaven. No place was found any longer for the devil and his angels. Now, that should bring about a question in our minds. No place was found for them any longer. And we might wonder, what place did they ever have in heaven? What place did they ever have in heaven? Well, what we see is that with the fall of Adam, with the sin of Adam, and therefore the fall of all mankind, Satan gained a legal claim over mankind and the earth. The devil is referred to as the accuser in Scripture. And we usually think of him as the false accuser, the slanderer. He, sent, he, he comes before God and he slanders us. He accuses us falsely. That is not what the devil does. And that is not what makes the devil so powerful. What makes the devil so powerful as the accuser is that he accuses us truthfully. His accusations are true. And so he could come before God the Father and say to him, regarding Adam and Eve, the father and mother of the human race, he could say to God, God, man, Adam, he believed my word, not your word. He followed me, not you. He did my will, not you. He did not image you, he imaged me. And all these accusations were exactly true. And so Satan would many years later tell Jesus when he was tempting him at the beginning of his ministry, he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and all their glory, and he says, I will give you all these if you worship me. And then he says something very interesting. He says, for all of this has been given to me, and I give it to whom I wish. Now that's the language of a legal claim, a legal right. He's, he's not saying, I have hijacked all this, well in a sense he has, but the way that he's gone about it has given him a legal claim over mankind and the earth. But with the ascension of Christ to heaven, Jesus has broken Satan's claim. Because Jesus as the new Adam, as the perfect man, the perfect image of God, the perfect son who has perfectly walked with the Father in faith and hope and love, obeying him even to the point of death on a cross, now Jesus as a man has a superior and valid claim over the whole world and over all mankind. So Satan no longer had any valid legal claim over mankind of the earth. Now what happens when you no longer have a case? 
you get thrown out of court. And that's what happened to Satan. He no longer had a case, and he got thrown out of the court of God in heaven. He got, metaphorically, he got thrown down the courthouse steps. He didn't want to leave. His case was thrown out. He didn't want to leave. And so the bailiff threw him down the courthouse steps. That's what happened. Now, Revelation 12 says that when he got thrown down, he got thrown down to some place. And that place was the earth. And it says that he was full of rage because he knew his time was short. Now, what does that mean, his time was short? Well, Revelation tells us that at the end of this period, when Christ brings judgment on, on uh, the covenant people who rejected him, he gives 40 years for repentance, and he finally brings judgment. Uh, it says that at that time that Satan was bound. Now, bound does not mean he's dead. Bound does not mean he's inactive. Bound does not mean he's powerless. Uh, if you handcuff somebody, or if you tie one hand behind their back, it doesn't mean that they're inactive, dead, or powerless. It just means that the power that they used to have is now limited. And it tells us specifically what binding means, that he should no longer deceive the nations in the way that he had in the past. If you look into the ancient world, you find that, except for rare exception, where God was revealing himself to Abraham and people around Abraham and so forth. The world was largely pitch black in darkness. Satan held the nations in thraldom and in darkness almost complete in the ancient world. And with the ascension of Christ and the binding of Satan, that is no longer true. Now the Holy Spirit that has been poured out on God's people has gone forth into the world. The light of God has come into the world in a big way and the Great Commission will be fulfilled. God will see to it that it is. Okay, so it says that Satan knows his time is short, and so he begins to persecute the saints, who are described as those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And it says one of the ways that Satan persecuted the saints was by spewing out a great river of water out of his mouth. Now that's apocalyptic language for describing a great flood of lies and heresies. And that is what Jesus is talking about when he refers to false prophets. There are always lies and heresies floating around the, the world. There's always lies and heresies floating around the church. But this was a time of unprecedented lies, distortions, heresies, false prophets, and as we will see, also false Christ. Now, let's jump ahead to the Olivet Discourse. This is shortly before Jesus is going to be arrested. He again is preparing his disciples for what is coming in their day. And he, he has just predicted to them that the temple is going to be destroyed. Now, we have to understand how unbelievable that would seem. This temple was being constructed by Herod the Great, and it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. There are ancient descriptions uh, that we have contemporary of the great uh, temple uh, uh, that Herod was building. He was still building it uh, while Jesus was speaking to the disciples, but a lot of it had already been completed, and it was magnificent. The, it would be uh, finished in about 63 AD is when Herod's temple would be finished. But the ancient descriptions we have of it are 
of, of the amount of the stones, the magnificence of it, and the amount of gold that was used. That you would come over, up over a rise as you were approaching Jerusalem, and you would see the, the drop down to a valley, and then there's a, 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 a hill <clears throat> that comes back up in Jerusalem. And there was this magnificent temple, much of it covered with gold, and the sun would gleam off of this. You could see for miles away, and it was truly one of the most magnificent scenes of the ancient world. And so for Jesus to say to his disciples when they're remarking in awe about how magnificent the temple already is, how great the stones are and how huge it is, Jesus says, take a look at these stones. Because I'm telling you, not one's going to be left on top of another. And it's going to happen during your lifetime. Now that would be unbelievable at the time. But it's exactly what happened. Not long after Herod completed this temple, well Herod was dead by that time, but by the time his temple got completed in about 63, and about 64 AD, um, the forces of uh, Christless Judaism had been whipped together into a frenzy of anti-Roman sentiment, and they rebelled against the Roman Empire, and you had the Jewish-Roman War that took place from about 64, uh, 67 AD till about 70 AD. And the armies of Rome would march against Jerusalem. Uh, some estimates are over a million uh, Jews died uh, the number of crucifixes that appeared outside of Jerusalem in Judea was like a forest. You couldn't even see the end of them. You know, sometimes you see these pictures today of uh, areas where they're putting in, trying to get uh, wind power, and so they have hundreds and thousands of those white windmills out over the landscape. Picture that as being crucifixes, as far as the eye could see. Sometimes you've seen uh, pictures of... Uh, the um, memorial cemetery in Washington, D.C., where all the service members who've died in past wars are buried, and you have all those white crosses and just a sea of them as far as you can see. Picture those instead of nice, clean, white crosses. Picture those as giant crucifixes with rotting corpses hanging on them. And that's what you had. And finally, in 70 AD, uh, the Roman armies breached the walls, got in, and this time, they had had it, Caesar had had it with the Jews, all those hotheads, and they destroyed it. They pulled down every stone, they plowed it under, they sowed it with salt. They made the biggest statement they could that this is dead. This is done. And so that's exactly what happened, and Jesus is preparing his disciples. He doesn't want them to be caught in that. He wants them to be out of that. Okay, so he says to them in the Olivet Discourse, when they say to him, when is this going to happen, and how are we going to know when it's about to happen? He says, look, take heed that no one deceives you. Many are going to come in my name. Many are going to say, I'm the Christ. In other words, I'm the Messiah. I'm the great king of Israel who's going to lead God's people to salvation. And he says, they're going to deceive many. So if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise, and they're not just going to arise. He says they're going to show great signs and wonders to deceive. They're going to have the power of Satan to do supernatural things. So it's not just going to be guys talking. It's not going to be typical politicians, blah, 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 blah. 
they're going to be doing signs and wonders. And he said they will deceive, if possible, even the chosen. And he said, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be delivered up to tribulation. They're going to kill you. You're going to be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Because by the time you get into the 60s AD with the Jewish-Roman War coming, um, already the Christians have been persecuted and hated by the Jews. Increasingly, they've been driven out of the synagogues and persecuted there, just like the Apostle Paul, back when he was the old evil Saul, was doing to the Christians. That would escalate and intensify. And then in about um, 64, 65 AD, on top of all that, Rome, which has been kind of the Christians' friends, if you read the book of Acts, ask yourself, where's the persecution coming from? It's all coming from the Christless uh, uh, power structure of the Jews. And it's, it's always the Romans who are stepping in to bring sanity. It's always the, the Romans are the ones who deliver Paul from the Jews who are trying to murder him. Well, that's going to change in the mid-60s A.D. with this insane emperor by the name of Nero. He, uh, there's going to be a great fire that's going to destroy a lot of Rome, and, and still today the thought is that Nero started it, and he's going to need a scapegoat, and the scapegoat that he's going to come up with is the Christians. So now it's not just the power structure of the Jews that's persecuting them. Now the Roman Empire is going to turn on them, and they're going to be hated, as it says, by all nations for Christ's name's sake. And he says, this is what's going to start happening among you. Many of you are going to be offended. In other words, you're going to stumble. You're going to stumble over this. You're going to go, how can we be the true people of God? How can this be the true God who is blessing us? How can he be with us? How can Jesus be the true Messiah when we are just getting buried? Everybody's winning but us. Maybe it's the Jews, maybe it's the Romans, but it ain't us. So hello, wake up and smell the coffee, guys. It's been a nice ride. It was a nice thought about Jesus being the Messiah and us being the true people of God. It was a nice while it lasted, but it's done. It's obvious that God is burying us beneath the rubble of history. So Jesus says, um, when the many stumble, you're going to start betraying one another and hating one another. And he says, many false prophets will rise up to deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. He who maintains faith through this horrible period of time is the true disciple. This is the one who will be saved. Okay. Now we have a lot of evidence in the New Testament, in the apostles' writings, about the very things that Jesus is talking about. For example, in 1 John, he says to the Christians... Um, he says, don't believe every spirit, test the spirit where they're, they're of God's, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then he explains to the Christians he's writing to, and he says, look, it's the last hour. It's the last hour. Even now, many antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. So you see, he's not just talking about the last days. He's talking about the last hour hour in the first century and he doesn't say I think it's the last hour he says we know it's the last hour because of all these false prophets and all these antichrists now he wasn't mistaken 
He's not talking about the return of Jesus at the end of time and the last judgment on the final day. That's all going to occur. That's not what John's talking about here. That's not what Jesus was talking about in the Olivet Discourse. He's talking about this judgment that's going to occur in the first century. Um, in 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, and you have to remember who Timothy was. He was a young man. Paul called him his son in the faith and his son in the ministry. He's like Paul's spiritual son. And he is a pastor. And Paul has left him in Ephesus to be the pastor there. And, and Timothy was not a, a, a perfect guy. Uh, you know, he, he suffered from timidity. He wasn't the most confident person. He wasn't... Uh, uh, he was a more um, introverted type person and was uh, tended to be a fearful type person. Paul wrote to him about his stomach troubles. And so you can see a person who has a trouble with anxiety, a trouble with fear. And so, but this is Paul's uh, son in the faith, and he's a pastor. And he's telling Timothy in 2 Timothy, this is Paul's last letter before he's going to be put to death, and he knows it's coming. And he's telling Timothy what he needs to know. And he writes to him and he says, look, he's in jail, he's in prison. And he says, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. Now, this is a fulfillment of the very kind of things that Jesus was talking about. Paul, the apostle Paul, says, no one stood with me, all forsook me. He says again in 2 Timothy, All those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. They've all turned away from me, he says. He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, Their message, the message that these men are now speaking, will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. They've strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. That's just one example of false prophets. That's what these guys were saying. The resurrection's already passed. False prophets were saying all kinds of stuff. It was absolute chaos. Paul in Acts chapter 20, the last time he meets with the Ephesian elders, he knows he's going to be arrested. And he says, uh, look, after I'm gone, you guys need to be prepared because savage wolves are going to come in among you and they're not going to spare the flock. Even among yourselves, he says, he tells them to their face, among yourselves, men are going to rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, the, the Spirit expressly says that in these latter times, some will depart from the faith and give heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons. Now, he describes the doctrines of demons there. He gives a few examples. One of them is forbidding to marry. Now, we've already heard about one false prophecy, which is that the resurrection's already come. Now, you've got the doctrine of demons, which Paul calls it, and, and one of the examples of like forbidding to marry. So, there was some kind of an asceticism that was being preached that was all baloney. Uh, at the time, but that was another example. And uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy, evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. He wants his son in the faith, 
his son, the pastor at Ephesus, Timothy, he wants him to be prepared for what's coming. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in our text and what he's doing in the Olivet Discourse. So, one of the things we need to get to this is that as the sovereign God orchestrates history, and as he carries forth his plan of salvation, and as he carries forth his people and the kingdom of God, which he is doing in the midst of this mess, we need to understand that when you're on the ground, it's like war. If you ever talk to somebody who's been in war, and I'm not talking about a war where we're a thousand times more powerful than the ones we're fighting against, which is we don't have any chance of losing it. I'm talking about a war that we could lose. I'm talking about like World War II. If you're ever talking about people who've actually been in combat, they will tell you that it is absolute, utter chaos. One of the big problems in war is that you can't communicate. The generals of an army can't communicate with the troops that are in the field half the time. It's just absolute chaos. And we have to understand that the Lord of history, the risen and ascended and reigning Jesus Christ, works in the midst of this chaos. He brings his purposes out of this. We're on the ground, when we're in the foxhole, we're not going to always know everything that's going on. It's going to seem like just utter confusion and chaos. And we're going to wonder what's going on. If we're taking more lead than we're given, it's going to be easy to start having second thoughts. It's going to be easy to doubt in the dark what we knew in the light. But we have to realize that our great commander in the field, Jesus Christ, he knows what he's doing. And he sees it from the mountaintop. We're confused. He's not confused. It's chaos here. But he draws straight with crooked lines, as one minister said. He brings order out of chaos. He brings his purposes forward. And we have to remember and not doubt in the dark what we knew in the light. Now, why is all this going on in the first century? Well, there was a big question, a big issue, a big historic issue that was being settled. And that issue is this. Who are the true people of God? Is it Christless Judaism? Is that the true people of God? Or is it the Christian, the fledgling Christian church? Is it the ones with all the power and the wealth? And it looks like they've got everything going for them? Or is it this ragtag group of disciples who look like a bunch of nobodies? They're from Galilee. They talk funny. And they know nothing. And they ain't been to seminary. Them. Is it them? A bunch of fishermen and others. That is the issue. Who is the true people of God? Who is the true bride of God? Christless Judaism or the Christian church? And this question will be answered, says Jesus, by who bears the good fruit of the kingdom of God and who doesn't. And that is what Jesus is getting at um, when he addresses the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the elders of the people near the end of his ministry. He's in the temple teaching. The Pharisees, chief priests, and elders of the people come to confront him. They're trying to trap him. It was the passage that George read to us this morning from Matthew chapter 21. 
And Jesus says to them, let me tell you a story. I want to tell you a story. And he tells them the story of a landowner who planted a vineyard and left it under the custody of vine dressers and goes into a far country. And when the vintage time comes near, he sends servants to receive the fruit of the vineyard. But these vine dressers, they beat and kill and stone his servants. And he keeps sending them servants, and they keep doing the same thing. And then finally, the landowner sends his own son to them, saying, you know, they'll listen to my son. They'll respect my son. Instead, the vine dressers go, hey, this is the son. This is the heir of the vineyard. Let's take him. Let's kill him. And then the vineyard will be ours. Let's hijack in other words, let's hijack the kingdom of God. And then Jesus asked them, so what do you think the landowner is going to do? Now, you have to know and you have to understand that they knew very well what Jesus was saying. Because it says at the end of the passage, they understood that Jesus was talking about them. They know he's not talking about a real vineyard and a real landowner. They know he's talking about God and Israel and them as the vine dressers. They know that. But he says to them, so what, what do you think the landowner is going to do to the vine dressers? And they answer him honestly. They say he's going to destroy those wicked men miserably and he will leave his vineyard to other vine dressers who render to him the fruits in their season. It's common sense. They know what's going to happen. And so Jesus says to them, I say to you, Therefore, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now, this new nation bearing the fruits of it is not going to be a particular ethnic group. It's going to be a new nation, a new humanity formed from all ethnic groups, all languages, all colors, all people of all types, founded on the rock of Jesus Christ. This will be the new nation that will bear the fruits of the kingdom. So, during the 40 years following the ascension of Jesus, there is going to be an overlap between increasingly Christless Judaism and the fledgling Christian church. At first, the Christian church will seem like part of, of Judaism, but the Christless forces who murdered Jesus will drive the Christian church out, will persecute her increasingly until those same forces and a furor of Jewish nationalism will revolt against Rome and will end up being destroyed in 70 AD. So, let's put ourselves on the ground with Jesus uh, giving us the Sermon on the Mount. What does this all mean? This would mean for us that we're in for one wild ride. We're in for 40 years of whitewater without any let up and it's going to get worse the further we go. Jesus is preparing his disciples for this here in the Sermon on the Mount and later in the Olivet Discourse. He's telling the disciples that they're going to be on the main center stage of history in this crucial drama of who is the one true God and who are his one true people. And Jesus says it's all going to come down to who bears the true fruit of the kingdom. And this is what God has been looking for all along. All along through the Old Testament, God has referred to Israel, he's referred to Israel as his bride, and he's referred to Israel as his vine or as his vineyard. 
and he's looking for the true fruit of life in Israel. That's the fruit Jesus is talking about. Now, having warned in verse 15 about the false prophets who are going to come in in sheep clothing, but they're actually wolves, Jesus then gives his disciples the test. But before we look at the test, we need to realize the thrust of what Jesus says to them twice. He says to his disciples twice, even though these guys are showing up looking like sheep, even though they're wolves and they look like sheep, he says, you will know them. He says it twice. You will know them. Verse 16 and verse 20. You will know them. You will know them. And then he goes on to tell them how they are going to know them. Now, in the Old Testament, a false prophet was known by two ways. One, his prophecy was not according to the word of God that had already been revealed. As it says, um, if they speak not according to the law and the prophets, there is no light in them. So if their prophecy is inconsistent with the word of God that's already been given, they are a false prophecy. The other way was that if the things they said were going to occur did not occur. If they didn't come true, they're a false prophet. Because when God says something's going to come to pass, it comes to pass. Okay? All right? Because he's not simply making predictions. He's the Lord of history. Now the problem with the second way of knowing a false prophet is it can take a period of time to wait and see if what they're saying is going to occur. So Jesus now tells his disciples that there's actually a quicker way to discern a false prophet, and that is by their fruits, by their fruits. He says you can know by their fruits without waiting to see if what they're saying is going to happen. You can know by their fruits whether they're really a sheep or whether they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now what we need to see here is that this test for true and false prophets is also the test for true and false disciples. Because when he says you will know them by their fruits in verse 16, he goes then, he gives them the general principle. Every good tree, he says, not just prophets, but every good tree bears good fruit and every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them, for every tree. So what he's saying there is the way you know a true or false prophet is the same way you know a true or false disciple. And that is by the fruit, because you know every tree by its fruit. Okay. So what is this fruit then that Jesus is saying that you will see or not see which will clue you in. Well, it's what he's been preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the fruit he's looking for, which he has is, he is said at the beginning and at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's preaching the Law and the Prophets. This is the fruit that God was looking for all along when he gave the Law to Moses. Because Jesus says, look, the whole law, some of it's confusing. You may not understand all of it. You may not understand what God is getting at when he says, you shall not muzzle an ox. You may not understand that. Jesus says, let me tell you what it's all about. All of it. It's about loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's about loving your neighbor as your, as your, as your uh, self. So if somebody says, don't muzzle an ox, what's going on with that? What's, 
What's with that? Well, you can say, honestly, I don't know. But I know it has something to do with loving God with all that we are and loving my neighbor as myself. I know that. Okay? And so Jesus is expounding the law. Everything he says in the Sermon on the Mount is already in the law. He's letting the law shine forth. He's just given them the golden rule and said, this is the law and the prophets. As you want others to treat you, you treat them. That is the law and the prophets. He has already told them, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Love your enemies. Bless and do not curse. Those who curse you, you bless them. Those who are spitefully using you and persecuting you, which is coming, it's not a theoretical issue to them. He says you pray for them and you seek their good and you seek their blessing. In this way, you show yourself to not be like them. You show yourself to be like your heavenly Father who is merciful, who is merciful. And that's what Jesus is getting at. The fruit of the Sermon on the Mount is what the disciples need to live out, and it's what they need to look for in others, whether they claim to just be a disciple or whether they claim to be a prophet. And Jesus is also going to tell them, in fact, next week we will get to this, whether they affirm and live by and obey his word. Okay? So they have to affirm, live by, and obey the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have to bear the fruit of the true people of God. Now, the New Testament speaks about this fruit different ways. Paul talks about it in Galatians. He says the fruit of the Spirit is this. This is just a different way of describing what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. He says it's love. That's the first thing. It's love. It's joy. It's peace. It's long-suffering and patience. It's kindness and loyalty. It's faithfulness and goodness. It's meekness, in other words, humility. And it's self-control rather than being self-will. He said it's, it's all of that. That's the fruit that Jesus is looking for. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus spelling out in detail how those fruits look on the ground in real life. So how does this then apply to us today? Since we're not living in the first century, there are unique aspects of this that, you know, if we try to make it normative for every uh, point of time in church history and every place in church history, we're going to end up twisting and warping the Christian life into something that it isn't. But we do have applications to us that we need to take heed to. And the first one is this. We need to realize that what God was looking for in the Old Testament, that fruit, that life, the river of the eternal life bubbling up inside people that produces this fruit, what he was looking for then, what Jesus was looking for in the Sermon on the Mount, what God was looking for in the first century, God is still looking for today. It doesn't change. This is what God wants from us. This is what God delights in. And here's, this is what we need to get. Because we've, we've received the Great Commission, where Jesus tells us to make all the nations his disciples. And, you know, but if you think about it, we don't really have the power to do that. Only God can make people his disciples. But he's involved us in this process. This is what we need to get. God does not show himself to be the one true God apart from showing his people to be the one true people of God. Let me say that again. 
because being light to the world, having people come to Christ, results from God showing himself to be the one true God. If God doesn't reveal himself to be the one true God, you do not have a conversion. That's the only way anyone comes to Christ, okay? God does not show himself to be the one true God apart from showing his people to be the one true people of God. God has connected his witness to our witness. Now, if we're making that decision, if we were sitting on God's advisory team, his ministry team, we would have told God, no way, no way. You cannot link your witness to these losers and their witness. That's a non-starter, God. That's, that's a recipe for disaster. But God knows what he's doing. He has linked his witness to our witness. And the only way he ever shows that he's the one true God is by him showing through us that we're his one true people. We are his one true people. So this is integral to our witness. Now this is why we see Jesus' emphasis is always on the fruit. In John chapter 15, this is just before Jesus is going to be arrested. He's talking to his disciples. He's telling them the things that they most need to know. Now picture, imagine, this is a horrible thought, and I apologize for that. But let's imagine that you as a Christian, you know you're going to die. Let's just say God somehow revealed to you, 48 hours, you're gone. You've got 48 hours, I'm bringing you home. There might be some things you want to say to your loved ones, knowing that you're not going to get another chance, okay? You may want to compose an email, a letter, something like that, that you send to all those who you are close to. You're not going to blather on in this letter about everything possible you can think of. You're really going to prayerfully try to think, what are the two or three things that I can say to my son, so-and-so, or my daughter, so-and-so, or my wife, or my husband, or my good friend, so-and-so? What are the two or three things I can say to them that will always hold them in good stead? no matter what they face. That's what you're going to want to say to them. And so this is what Jesus is doing as he's talking to his disciples here in John 15. And he says, look, here's something you need to know. This is what my Father is glorified by, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is what my Father delights in. This is how you glorify my Father in yours. Bear much fruit. And this is also how you show yourself to be my disciples. Jesus says, look, I know you chose me, but you didn't really choose me. I first chose you. And I appointed you. Why did I appoint you? That you should go and bear fruit. Go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should remain. It's lasting fruit. And that whatever... You ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Notice the connection between the bearing of fruit and the kind of relationship with the Father where he grants whatever we ask. That means that our thoughts are becoming his thoughts. Our will is becoming his will because we have that kind of relationship and we bear fruit. This is my commandment, then Jesus says to them. He's going to give them a specific example. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now when you think about it, humanly speaking, as fallen human beings, there is no 
tougher commandment than that. Because we're all sinners, we're all bent out of shape, we don't fit, we're all square pegs, somehow trying to fit in round holes, and then we're all together, and he says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. So that's Jesus' emphasis. It's on the fruit. It's not on technique. It's not on methods, which can all be good and be appropriate. It's on the substance. It's on the fruit. And we see the same kind of emphasis from the apostles. In Colossians 1, Paul says, Look, here's my prayer for you, that you may walk worthy of the Lord and be pleasing to Him and be fruitful. Be fruitful in every good work increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice how those two things go, go together. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Those things go together. And he says, being strengthened with all might, according to his glory power, with all patience and longsuffering, with joy, giving thanks to the Father <clears throat> who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. <clears throat> so we see bearing fruit in every good work goes hand in hand with increasing in the knowledge of God. It also goes hand in hand with giving thanks to the Father. In Ephesians, we see the same thing with Paul. He says, look, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You are the temple of the Spirit, so don't grieve the Spirit. And, and so Paul says, look, let me tell you what that means. What that means is this. There's some things you need to get rid of. You need to get rid of bitterness. You need to get rid of wrath. You need to get rid of anger. You need to get rid of clamor. You need to get rid of evil speaking and malice. All of that stuff needs to go. It needs to have no place in you anymore. And instead, this is what needs to be in you if you want to bear fruit. You're kind to one another. You're tender-hearted. You forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. And he goes on and says, this is how you will be imitators of God as dear children. This is how you will walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So these are all examples of the fruit. But my point is this. When you read Jesus and when you read the apostles, out of all the things that they can focus on, when they're talking to us, their focus is constantly on the preconditions of witness. The preconditions, which is fruit. It's like they understand. You know, David says, my cup runneth over. My cup runneth over. And that's what witnessing, that's what the life of the church is supposed to be. Running over with living water. Running over with the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? That's what's going out. The emphasis of the apostles is what's coming out of us. What's supposed to be coming out of us is living water. But whatever is coming out of us, it's what's already in us. You see, it's what's already in us. And so whether we have a spout to pour the water, of the living water out, or whether we don't have a spout, we're just kind of clueless organizationally, we have no spout. If we're overflowing, it's coming out. And that's the most important thing. It can slosh out, it can be sloppy, spilling over everywhere, or it can pour out through a spout and uh, maybe we should have a spout, that would be great, but the most important thing is that what's coming out of us is actually the fruit of the kingdom. It's out of the living water, and that is the focus. And this is the authentication. It's the badge. 
In John 13, Jesus says, I give you this new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, we would like to come up with all sorts of other ways that the world would know that we're disciples of Jesus and the true people of God and that they ought to listen to us. But Jesus gives us one. One. If we love one another. That's it. There's no other way for the world to know we are the true people of God and therefore God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the one true God. There's no other way. There's no other option. And if you think about a badge, what does a badge do? It authenticates. And it defies, it defies uh, counterfeiting. It shows we are the true people of God, and God is in our midst. This is the true gospel. This is the true God who is in our midst. Okay. Now, finally, I want us to think just a little bit about fruit itself. And what it is. Now, we talked about love and joy and peace and patience and those kind of things. But I mean, in a more fundamental way, I want us to think about what fruit is. Fruit is a byproduct. Fruit is a byproduct. Okay? Think about it. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Fruit is a byproduct of us as branches communing with Christ. That's what abiding in the vine means, communing with him. Fruit is organic. It's a byproduct. It's not something we can manufacture directly. We're powerless to dial up fruit. We're powerless to manufacture it. It's a byproduct that comes from us communing with the living God. And that's what life is about from the get-go, isn't it? Communing with God, communing with the living God, which leads to us then communing with one another. You know, if you, if you ever have one of those days and, and you're wanting to take a few minutes thinking about it, I, I need to take a few minutes and spend a little time, even if it's just 10 or 15 in the Word of God, just a little time in prayer. But, you know, I'm just too busy. I'm too busy. I got too many things going on today. I mean, life is going on, you know, and I can't take time and divert it over there. It's like, just remember this. And, and I know sometimes uh, it happens, and sometimes you really can uh, have too many things and, and be too busy. But what is life? What is life? It is communing with the living God. So don't forget that when it comes to spending a little time with him in his word or in prayer, or having a family devotion. Don't forget about that. This is what God delights in, and therefore it should be what we delight in, in our emphasis. If we are communing with the living God, abiding in Christ and his word in us, the fruit will naturally come about. It will be the byproduct that will come about. When God then delights in a people, when he delights in a vineyard, he likes to come into that vineyard and to linger. Picture a beautiful garden with fruit, is shady, there's water, it's like an oasis. God loves to come into a fruitful vineyard and to linger there. He loves to come amongst the people who are communing with him and bearing fruit and linger in their midst. And that's what we want. 
Because when God lingers in the midst of a people, well, we can feel it. It's palpable. He grants us that. He grants us that specialness of experiencing, tasting that he is good and that he is the living God. If we lack the fruit, it's not because we're not manufacturing it. If we lack the fruit, it's because we're not communing with the living God the way that we should. We're not communing with him. And so let us be a people who focuses where Jesus focused and the apostles focus, and that is communing with the living God. The test of our communion then becomes our communion with one another. And let's ask God to rise up and do great things by delighting in us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.